0: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. Today's podcast features a conversation with Rachel B. Herman, an academic who specialises in colonial, revolutionary and Atlantic history, with a particular focus on food and hunger. Rachel has just written a new book, No Useless Mouth, on food warfare and diplomacy in the American Revolution, and she visited our Bristol offices recently to talk about it with our content director, David Musgrove. We also filmed this conversation, so if you'd like to watch as well as listen, you can find that at our website, historyextra.com.
2: Okay, I'm taking a line from your introduction here. Uh, and the quote is, No Useless Mouth is a book about how Native Americans, non-natives, and peoples of African descent experienced hunger before, during, and after the American Revolutionary War. So before we get going, we should probably just clarify our chronology here. Before, during, and after the war, what's the period that we're we're going to be talking about?
3: So when historians say the American Revolution, they can mean a couple different things. Um So when they say uh, War of Independence or Revolutionary War, they're usually just referring to the military conflict, which ends in 1783 with the uh, Treaty of Paris between the British and the Americans. Start date is a little bit more complicated because some people date the start to 1776 with the Declaration of Independence. Some people date it to 1775 when military conflict sort of begins at lexington and concord the american revolution is a broader period that begins in the 1750s, 1760s, and some people, including me, push it to about 1830. And the idea behind doing that is that lots of different people experience the American Revolution in different ways, and having a broader chronology makes it easier to appreciate the changes and continuities that exist during that time period.
2: Okay. So, roughly speaking, we're, we're going 1750s to around 1830 in the context yeah. of this discussion.
3: Late 18th, early 19th century. Okay,
2: fine. And uh, just a, another question on terminology, so I don't, um, so I don't misspeak. Um, you refer to Indians and Native Americans uh, in the book. Where, where are we at with that? Is that uh, are we okay with, with using those I think, those terms? I
3: think, I think we're at a moment when the words we use are changing. Um, uh, So uh, I tend to use Native American, and if I know the tribe I'm speaking about, I try to specify whether I'm talking about Creeks or Cherokees or Iroquois, people who today call themselves the Haudenosaunee. Um, It's still common in some circles to use Indian. I do it myself. It's a term that Native Americans used at the time to refer to themselves. Um, But I think we're living in an era where everyone is just thinking quite carefully about the language that we use.
2: And then just some other terms that you talk about, which we will get into, I'm sure, more, but um, let's try and uh, sketch out what they mean. So um, you use um, uh, three terms, food diplomacy, vital imperialism, and vital warfare in yes. the book. Do you want to just try and give us a sense about what, what you're talking about there with those terms?
3: Sure. Um, so those terms exist on this spectrum of power, from cooperative behavior to more violent behavior. Um When I started writing the book, I was very conscious of this sort of image of a happy family sitting around the dinner table, um, as we do on Sundays, and... I wanted to find a way to talk about those cooperative moments while acknowledging the violence that the absence of food could create as well. So food diplomacy is the more peaceful form of behavior I describe in the book. Um, it can involve the uh, sharing or distribution of foodstuffs to create or maintain alliances. Um, so People, um, when they distribute foodstuffs, might have distributed um, corn or flour, or salted beef, or salted pork. Nothing particularly fancy or particularly delicious, um, but something that was seen as a way to maintain alliances. Um, On the opposite end of the spectrum is vital warfare, um, the destruction or theft of crops or animals, um, levying threats of um, hunger-creating campaigns um, by the military. Um, And then vital imperialism emerged late in the writing of the book. Um, it could be somewhat accommodating, could be somewhat violent, depending on who was practicing it and where in the Atlantic world they were. Um, but vital Imperialism is the introduction of uh, food programs um, or hunger prevention programs um, while at the same time trying to take land or to interfere with trade.
2: And Thank you. And would any of those terms have been used by um, uh, contemporary people in the uh, in the period we're talking about, or are these all historic constructs that you're using? To to
3: these are all historical uh, constructs that I'm using. I think it's the historian's job to make the past more comprehensible. Um, So no people at the time wouldn't have used these terms together. They would have used the terms vittles um, to relate to foodstuffs. Um, So that's why I use vittle warfare uh, and "vital imperialism.
2: And and "vital," a slightly archaic term, but just means foodstuffs generally.
3: It means foodstuffs. It can also be used as a verb. So if you were vittling someone, you were providing them with foodstuffs. Okay.
2: Good. Um, so you, you kind of imagine, or at least I do, in, in my naive ignorance, the, the American Revolution, the American Revolution War is, is broadly about people facing up to each other, shooting each other, and, and you know, having dramatic escapes and, and charges around the countryside um, uh, and sieges and that sort of thing. Um, you don't tend to think so much about uh, the, the the food aspect of that. Um I assume that your line is that, um, that 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 is correct and it's a slightly under undercooked aspect of uh, historical research.
3: Yes, I appreciate the pun. Um, I think it is uh, an aspect that can be overlooked. I think also it is tempting to think of the Revolutionary War as this history of grand battles. But I also think that both the American and British militaries at times embraced uh, guerrilla warfare and informal campaigns, um, particularly the Americans, because they knew they didn't have the manpower to fight the British in head-on battles at all times, and they knew the terrain better. So it was to their advantage to embark on scorched earth campaigns that involved destroying food. Uh, But when we're talking about the sort of big battles that we think of when we think about the war, um, people did concern themselves a lot with provisioning soldiers, um, which you needed to do to move the the military. So, for example, um, Secretary of War Uh, Henry Knox in the 1780s and 1790s, so after the Revolutionary War is over, but while the United States is waging a war against a confederated group of Native Americans in, in the old Northwest, Henry Knox comes up with this plan to try and train cattle to carry flour. Because he thinks it's sort of killing two birds with one stone. If you can use live cattle to transport flour, then the cattle can reach a destination, be butchered, and then the troops also have the flour to consume. And he writes lots of letters to people trying to convince them to a, that this is a good plan um, and he has to be sort of talked down because it's not particularly practicable. Okay. Okay. Um-
2: Right. So, having said that, that your um, your book and your research uh, covers this broader sweep, I'd like to try and just laser in for the purpose of this podcast a bit into the into the into the more specific period of the uh, of the Revolutionary War. So, we've got the American rebels or patriots rage against the forces of uh, King George III from seventeen seventy five or, or thereabouts. What part does food play in the story at that early stage of the of the conflict?
3: At that early stage in the conflict, the British probably have quite a lot more thinking to do about how to set themselves up successfully to wage this war because the the immediate context preceding the war um, for independence is the Seven Years' War, and during the Seven Years' War, which ends in 1763, um, American colonists have been thinking of themselves as British colonists and they've been supporting the British against the French. And so during that war, the British could depend on colonists to supply them from quite a close distance. Um, But now the Americans are the enemy and so British soldiers arriving from overseas don't have a way to adequately provision themselves. So in order to maintain any sort of force of significance, the British have to quite quickly figure out how much they can ship How often to ship it, how to ensure that if their ships are taken by the Americans, the people on the ground don't starve. Um, And the Americans don't have to think about that as much because they've already been thinking about it in the context of previous campaigns. So what's challenging for the Americans is that the Continental Army is a relatively new creation. The different colonies are not used to working together, and you have the creation of laws by the individual colonies and then states sort of saying, well, we'll provide flour and meat to troops from Connecticut who are fighting in Connecticut, but we don't want to do that if they have to cross into Massachusetts. Massachusetts then should bear the burden of supplying those troops. So. Different logistical enemy, uh, different logistical concerns for both sides, for the Americans closer to home and for the British further away.
2: And what about the uh, the Native Americans? Where do they fit into the story at this stage? In
3: 1775, they don't fit into the story so much because. Well, they fit into the story, but they don't need to fit into the story for food and provisioning because they're quite capable of supplying themselves. Um, So Native women have a a long established tradition of growing and storing corn, beans, squash. Um, It's traditional in both the, well, in in the British military that that when Native warriors go out on expeditions uh, with the British, um, it's ceremonial to supply um, war chiefs with rations for them and their families, Um, but the majority of fighters um, coming from the Native side of things are supplying themselves with provisions that Native women have grown and stored. So uh, Native Americans at that point wouldn't have needed to think too much about food because it was something they did automatically and the other reason that they don't feature in the military side of the story is that in 1775 the british were beginning to think about using native americans in the war against the rebels the american colonists because of a long history of poor relations, um, knew that the best they could ask for was to ask Native Americans to remain neutral. So at the start of things, there was quite a lot of focus on diplomacy and talks and trying to persuade Native Americans not to fight for the British.
2: Okay. So at what point, if at all, does either side start to think about using either food diplomacy or vital warfare um, to advance their aims?
3: Both of those practices had existed from the colonial period onwards. So uh, um, there had been lots of scorched earth campaigns against Native Americans uh, from really the 1490s onward. What had changed is that most Europeans had stopped using vital warfare against other Europeans by the 18th century. Um, So it was different in that they continued to practice vital warfare against Native Americans, but not really any one else, with a couple exceptions. Um, food diplomacy was also something that the British had practiced, so most notably Sir William Johnson, um, superintendent of Indian Affairs in the North. Um, he'd been active in the what is now New York area from about the 1750s onward, and Johnson was critical at maintaining or Creating and maintaining alliances with the Iroquois, um, the Six Nations, uh, through a system of what would have been called forest diplomacy. And so, forest diplomacy involved the hosting of meetings and the distribution of gifts and trade goods, the setting of prices to ensure that the fur trade continued to benefit Native Americans, and the gifting of food and the hosting of feasting. The hosting of feasts was all part of forest diplomacy, um, but hadn't really been any more important than other forms of diplomacy up until the Revolutionary War. That's sort of what I argue in the book. I argue that because of a variety of problems with um, trade diplomacy, uh, food diplomacy suddenly became much more important. And it became much more important because food was something that all sides in the Revolutionary War could produce, and it was something that all sides could destroy. And that made it difficult for people who were used to having power uh, to maintain power relations because suddenly lots of people could produce something that they hadn't really thought about before. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. During the Revolutionary War... You also had people who refused food, who destroyed animals, who destroyed crops, because that was a more powerful action
4: than accepting foodstuffs from an enemy. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com/historyextra today to get ten percent off your first month. That's BetterHelp hel History historyextra
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search
2: Moving on to the to the second stage of the uh, American Revolution, war in the in the southern states. Um, what happened there in terms of the food dynamic? You talk quite a lot about the importance of Dunmore's Proclamation in this story. So, can you just give us a bit of a sense there?
3: Yes. So, uh, Lord Dunmore was the governor of Virginia, uh, colony of Virginia. He was sympathetic to the British. Um, So around May of 1775, rumors began to circulate that Dunmore was trying to collect a force of enslaved people and Native Americans to... Uh, come to his aid should events accelerate and should war break out between colonists and British officials? And Dunmore made matters worse in December, uh, sorry in November of 1775 by uh, taking gunpowder um, and making it so that no one could access it except for him and and the people who followed him. And this encouraged the idea that he was indeed trying to create a mass force that would come to his aid. And he issued a proclamation offering freedom to what he called slaves of rebel masters. This was a very strategic decision because... People weren't really sure how southern colonists were going to fall when it came to being pro-British or pro-American. They had a lot of money tied up in keeping people of African descent enslaved. in the mainland colonies, as in the Caribbean, um, there was a sense that the British Navy was necessary to prevent mass runaways. And so Dunmore's proclamation had a sort of strategic point to it. It sort of signaled to—well, it was meant to signal to enslaved people that if you know that the person who enslaves you is sympathetic to the American rebels, you can run away and join the British and um, obtain your freedom. For the uh, people who were still loyal to the British, it was supposed to signal to them, look, we're not going to try and convince your slaves to rebel or to rise up. Um, There's some historiographical disagreements, so disagreement among historians about how effective Dunmore's proclamation was and how good it was at keeping southern colonists from rebelling against the British— The short-term effects were that some hundreds of enslaved people did choose to liberate themselves and to run to Dunmore. Um, The longer-term effects were that it was very difficult to tell whether someone who had self-liberated themselves was uh, enslaved by an American or a British person. And it was advantageous to claim that you had been enslaved by an American master so that you could run to the British um, for your freedom. And the majority of people of African descent did flee to the British rather than the Americans. So there, there were some black regiments that fought for the Americans as well. So the, the longer term effects in the South were that you suddenly had these groups of formerly enslaved people descending on plantations of masters, of uh, former masters, and stealing stored food from them. And you have to sort of imagine how... Um, Liberating that must have felt and how deeply it infuriated former masters against the British. So ultimately, um, it probably did push more southern colonists into supporting the Americans at the same time that it gave the British a new way to locate and supply their own military force.
2: Okay. So the the formerly enslaved people were engaging in their own form of vital warfare then?
3: Well, they were employed by the British um, as thieves, as wagoners, as people who did laundry and did cooking. Um, But it was very difficult if they were captured to prove that they were employed for the British. So they took on quite a lot of personal risk um, because the penalty for being caught could Be being hanged.
2: Going back to the to the Native Americans, then. So, can you just sketch out a bit more about how they were involved?
3: Sure. So, uh, I argue that in the northern region of the conflict, food diplomacy between the British, uh, the Americans, and the Iroquois is what matters. And I argue that in the southern region, it's vital warfare that really seems to matter. in the south you have a different and more complex um, European powers interfering in the war. So you've got the British, you've got the Americans, eventually you have the Spanish. And there's so many different European officials trying to practice food diplomacy that all the other European officials try to block everyone else's. And when that happens, vital warfare, vital warfare breaks out and this kind of overarching state of chaos prevails. But what's really interesting is that There's always been this tendency throughout the colonial period to attack animals, um, usually cows and horses, uh, usually killing them. So what's interesting during the Revolutionary War is that there's this shift from uh, uh, killing these animals— To stealing them, and we begin to see this new form of property holding um, that historians like Claudio Sant have described emerge among uh, Creeks and Cherokees. There's much more tendency to raise cattle, um, not as much tendency to eat beef as we might expect, because for these Native Americans, animals are status symbols, they're property, they're the sort of thing um, that you give away to your friends as a grand, generous, just
2: okay um, so does does your work here um, give a bit more, agency and power to the, to these two groups that we're talking about the the native americans and the and the slaves or formerly enslaved depending on, on where they were in the time scale. does it gives them more more role in in the wider story rather than you know we this just seeing these two big colonial what well, the, the colonial powers versus the colonial the the colonials it, does that allow them to have a, a bigger role in the story
3: i think it does i think the other thing that i hope that it does is helps historians deal with the fact that often enslaved peoples don't leave behind their own written records and native americans um the written records that we have recovering native voices are almost always produced by europeans so what i've tried to do is to look at how people acted in response to hunger and in response to the supply of food and to try and say well if we don't have written documents or if the documents are problematic then maybe we can try and triangulate how people were thinking and how people were feeling based on how they responded to food scarce situations so
2: after the war after the american victory over the british in 1783 it's not the end of the story is it what's what's the what's the next stage
3: so the next stage Changes depending on whether you're a person of Native descent or a person of African descent. For formerly enslaved people, I follow the groups of colonists who migrate from the uh, former American colonies to Nova Scotia, um, where they sort of have a half decade of uh, very cold very, very cold uncertainty Um, and then follow them as they cross the ocean to Sierra Leone um, where they participate in one of uh, Britain's first anti-slavery communities um, and get into all sorts of um, efforts to um, become... Jurists, um, so they sit on juries, um, efforts to write and pass their own legislation, so their own food laws, and these food laws which they had sort of suffered under in Nova Scotia um, and had caused lots of problems for them, they decide to reenact in Sierra Leone as a way to kind of lay claim to power and lay claim to being legitimate political actors. The problem in Sierra Leone is that those food laws create conflict with the Temne and uh, Ultimately, the white British officials who hold the highest positions of power in the colony decide that it's better to maintain good relations with Africans than it is to recognize black loyalist lawmaking. Um, So this event in 1800 that other historians have said is is a rebellion, um, I say is a food riot by these black colonists to reclaim the right to pass the food laws they've been passing for the last decade uh, upon their arrival in Sierra Leone. And for Native Americans, um, there's a couple different phases of what happens. So there is a an upsurge in uh, a new war with the new United States at the same time that there is a new upsurge in diplomacy with the same U.S. officials um, that eventually turns into vital imperialism. So... Um, in the 1780s and the 1790s, the United States has signed this Treaty of Peace with Great Britain. The Peace Treaty makes no mention of the Native Americans, the majority of whom had allied with the British, um, and the Americans tried very hard to enforce this count of conquest to say to Native Americans whom they met at meetings, look, we conquered the British We have this land that they have ceded to us, and because you allied with the British, that land that was yours is now ours. Um, Native Americans don't buy this. Hmm. And uh, take the United States to task for poor diplomacy because the United States takes a while to figure out how to practice it the way the British who preceded them did. So the United States has this kind of two-faced policy where they're trying to practice diplomacy, but also warning that if diplomatic talks fall apart, that the U.S. will wage war. Um, So this is what they do. Um, They go to war against a confederated force of many different Native nations, um, among them Delaware's Miami Shawnees. Um, There are a number of um, sort of skirmishes and then a couple key battles, um, including some very significant defeats for the United States. Um, So Harmer's defeat um, is among them, Um, and then early 1790s, you have the introduction of General Matt Anthony Wayne, who fought in the Revolutionary War as well, trained his men in guerrilla warfare, um, and ultimately won a major victory in 1794 at the Battle of Fallen Timbers. Um, and with the Treaty of Greenville in 1795, those Native Americans ceded the majority of land that was the cause of their dispute with the United States. So the United States got what it wanted. Um, and thereafter, the United States pursued um, what's come to be known as the poorly titled plan of civilization, which was predicated on the idea that Native Americans used too much land because they were hunters, um, which was not true because as we learned at the beginning of this podcast. Native American women had been farming since time immemorial. Um, But the United States was invested in casting Native Americans as hunters who used too much land because the U.S. population was exploding and non-Native white Americans wanted land um, for um, farming, for sort of proto-industrialization, for the expansion of slavery, And the United States, as part of this plan of civilization, sought to turn Native hunters into husbandmen, into farmers. Um, The idea was that Native men who had been responsible for hunting would become farmers. Native women who had been responsible for agriculture would become spinners and weavers. And... um, Native Americans would need less land because they wouldn't be hunting deer or beaver um, as you get farther west on Buffalo. Um, And the plan of civilization ultimately um, involved the introduction um, and the encouragement of eating more beef and more wheat over
2: corn. So... What you've just sketched out there, that, that's that's visceral imperialism.
3: Yes, because it's interfering with the ways that people eat um, while um, encouraging land sessions.
2: Okay. Fascinating. Um, we're, we're getting towards the end. So are there any obvious questions I ought to ask you so that our listeners can understand uh, the gist of your research?
3: Well, you haven't asked me about taste.
2: Okay. Tell me about taste.
3: Well... I it's sort of a cheat question because it it lets me talk about all the nasty things that people ate. Um, so I don't talk a ton about taste because the types of foods that I talk about in the book are not really things that you want to eat. So you have these fabulous stories of um, British flour that is really American flour. It's been produced in the colonies during the war and it gets shipped to England where it sits on wharves for several months and gets wet and moldy and then gets shipped back across the Atlantic so that British soldiers can eat it. Um, you hear stories about um, foodstuffs that that's was sort of described as being quote-unquote impregnated with the sweat of horses Um, you have butter that's almost a year old Um, and I think I love food programs that talk about delicious things and I cook a lot and I love reading about food and looking at pictures of it but when we talk about war I think it's really important to sort of Bring ourselves back to Earth and think about some of the very basic thing that soldiers ate in the past and that soldiers today eat. Um, MREs, for example, are uh, not delectable, delectable, meals ready to eat, um, sort of dehydrated food.
2: Okay, thank you. Okay, so finally, what's what's the what's the bigger story here? Is there anything um, that uh, that historians should be doing more generally uh, by analysing uh, food diplomacy, food warfare, to understand conflicts more widely, um, not just within your period and your area of research?
3: Yeah, I think the biggest takeaway that I hope people um, remember is that hunger changes depending on the time and place that you're thinking about it and that it's not neutral. So I'm used to thinking of this idea of hangriness, this sensation of being hungry and angry at the same time. And it's useful to remind ourselves that that's a very modern idea. People in the past expected to go hungry. They expected to go without food. Um, It didn't make them angry in the same way because hunger was part and parcel of everyday life. But during the Revolutionary War... You also had people who refused food, who destroyed animals, who destroyed crops, because that was a more powerful action than accepting foodstuffs from an enemy. That was Rachel Herman.
0: Her new book, No Useless Mouth, Waging War and Fighting Hunger in the American Revolution, is out now, published by Cornell University Press. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Wednesday speaking to Frank Dakota about 20th Century Dictators.
2: A
1: collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep.